You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, John. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Good. Good. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you. Let me introduce us. I am Robert Wright. Uh, this is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're John Tatominal, professor of... Uh, Theology at Union Theological Seminary, and I think behind you what we see, it could be the library at Union. It could be a an image of the library at Union. Now, if you tell me it's the actual library at Union, I am going to say that we should dial 911 about that guy over your right shoulder because he hasn't moved. Right. Okay. Uh, he, he, he never does. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe he's meditating. Yes. Which is has some relevance to what we're going to talk about. Um, you are the author of The Eminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament. That's not the book we're going to talk about, though. We're going to talk about your book, Circling the Elephant, A Comparative Theology of Religious Diversity, which addresses the question of how we should think about the different religions of the world and their relationship uh, toward one another. You know, can they uh, can they be reconciled? How How should we... Uh, you know, what's a good metaphor for their relationship if you think they can be reconciled? Uh, is it the case, as some have said, that, that they're all climbing the same mountain, but they're on different sides, but still they'll get to the top and realize that fundamentally they're saying the same thing? Um, or is there some other metaphor that might be more apt? Now, I don't want to, uh, you know, do a plot spoiler now. I want to I keep people in suspense. <laughs> don't tell us the answer. And if there is another metaphor that, for example, involves an elephant, don't tell us what that is right now. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to just start out by saying that ever uh, ever since reading the introduction to your book, I have found myself humming How Great Thou Art. Oh. And that's – I'm not kidding. Oh, the, wow. the, uh, that, that's a song I'm very familiar with from my youth. Uh, my – uh, my my sisters used to play it on the piano. It's a very nice song. I, I was reminded of what a nice song it was. It is. It is. Um, and and uh, I want to get around to how that figures into the introduction of your book. Um, but but uh, first of all, I I uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of the story about yourself that you tell us in the introduction to your book, your own. Uh, you know, you come to this question uh, from a very. Uh, I would say unusual vantage point in terms of your own religious development. You want to talk about that? Sure, sure. You know, um, I find myself pondering whether it's unusual. Certainly, it strikes one as unusual, but I think increasingly people are probably becoming more like me, and that's specifically referring to the sense that many more of us are shaped by not just reading about, but but actually practicing more than uh, one strand of one tradition. Um, so that's the that's that's what you mean, I think, when you say unusual. Now it's true that my own journey has. I also mean that given given uh, the country where your family's religious tradition was acquired, it's not the tradition one would guess. But go ahead. No, no, uh, that's right. Yeah. So I grew up in the Martoma Church, which, uh, for those who don't know, Martoma means something like Saint or Lord Thomas, and it refers to the traditional conviction in South India, Kerala in particular, 
that St. Thomas the Apostle, the, the doubting one, came to India. And uh, I don't have any idea why we have this absurdly particular date, AD 52, uh, not 51, 53, but that's apparently the, when he came. Um, and the story goes that he uh, came to convert, uh, yeah, folks to, to Christianity, but had, uh, particularly he was aiming for the Jews who were there, and he apparently had really no luck. And uh, but did have some luck with some folks in India. Anyway, we, we remember that tradition. And so my family has been, according to its own uh, recollection, Christian forever. I mean, you know, sometimes we talk as though we got off the boat with Thomas. Um, but I got to the U.S. when I was about nine years old, just a little bit before. And my Christianity did not help me think through what it meant to be Indian. Because in the U.S., well, everyone's Christian. <laughs> you know what I mean, mm -hmm. at least culturally. And so I grew very interested in learning about Indian religious traditions um, as a way of trying to figure out what it means to be Indian. Um, and that led me to read uh, you know, books like the, uh, the Houston Smith's book then called The Religions of Man, but now called The World's Religions, yeah, can and, you can can I stop you there? I, I was trying sure. to remember. I have kind of read, you know, in the book, not read the whole book. I did have the privilege of interviewing him uh oh. in person in an earlier incarnation of Meaning of Life TV. That's still oh. online somewhere probably. But I, I went I went to Berkeley to do it. But can you remind us of what his answer was to the relationship of the of of the world's religion? He was of course a very important figure uh in uh, bringing Americans in touch kind of with this question and with religions they hadn't yeah. uh, they hadn't heard of uh, he was a he was a figure on PBS and 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 he wrote this big book is it easy to summarize what he would say about yes yes I mean he was a perennialist okay uh, and so he does hold that behind the manifest diversity of the world's religious traditions there is an underlying stream. And of course, perennialists will describe the stream in various ways, but typically they'll say something like a kind of unitive mysticism behind uh, the world's religious traditions. And, and this was, and, and Aldous Huxley did as much as anyone to popularize perennialism, right? I think he did. He write a right. book called The Perennial Philosophy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think so. I think yeah. so. And and so so the idea is that uh, there that all. Religions are are based on the same fundamental truth, uh, and, and and is it the case, by the way, that in this view, uh, the 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 truth was more was it more explicit in the beginning of some of these religions? Is that the idea? There is that view, you know, that religions have kind of fallen. But if you look at the ancient ancient texts, they really got it right. Uh, I, I I don't know whether whether uh, that. Is if that if that idea is associated, that idea is not inherently associated with perennialism, right? No, it, it doesn't have to be. Okay, no, it no. can be, but doesn't have to be. But there no. is this idea that there's something, the Godhead, the ground of being, ultimate reality, something that they're all about. All the religions are like about one person, a person's relationship to this thing, and and they all fundamentally are about. Uh, 
a kind of discovering a kind of unity with that thing, with divinity, with whatever, right? Right. Uh, I mean, there'll be slight variations, but generally you have that exactly right. Um, and the emphasis will be on something like accessing ultimate reality by means of a unitive experience of some kind, typically classed as mystical. Okay. Now, that brings us to your own early religious experience, which will bring us to the song How Great There Art Before Long. Uh, you, you write that when you went to college, you said your religious life was full, quote, not because I was given to extraordinary religious experiences, but rather because I had a continuous felt sense of divine presence. You want to elaborate on, uh, sounds nice. You want to elaborate on how it feels? <laughs> I mean, I'm, 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 I'm open to you cultivating that in me. Well, you know, that's, that's partly what I tried to articulate. I, I suspect I was in some sense weird um, because for me, that sense of divine presence what some would call divine imminence was not really due to any sort of disciplined practice. It was not like I was, uh, you know, uh, a meditator then. It was just part of my own experience of life. I, I didn't have to ask, does God exist? And it was not clear to me that even the word God was quite the word I was looking for, but just a sense of presence uh, that was always with me. And, um, I mean, I, th I think before I started doing religious studies as a, as a major, I wouldn't have the categories to say uh, words like imminence or uh, transpersonal mm -hmm. presence or anything fancy, but just a real sense of um, never being separated. I, I guess, uh, you know, the classical mystical uh, statements like, you know, uh, from the biblical tradition, in whom I move, live and move and have our being, right? Uh, God is the one in whom we move and live and have our being. That kind of Pauline sentiment um, comes close to experiencing, uh, mm -hmm. expressing what I was experiencing. But I, I, I latter, uh, as I started reading in a, in a substantive way, the closest analog, I thought, was the Advaita Vedanta tradition's sense that uh, the true self is the divine. Um, and that, that was very exciting when I, when I discovered that particular strand of the Hindu tradition. Yeah, and, 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 and you suggest that you kind of had a taste for that even back before you had a name for it. The, the, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let, me, let me just do a digression and get to how great <laughs> they are, because you, the line I just read hit me in a funny way. When you said I had a continuous felt sense of divine presence, I thought, you know, so did I. And uh, even though I've uh, lost my Christian faith per se, I still do. However, the nature of my sense of it is very different from yours in, in ways that you actually go on to articulate in a way like... I, I mean, I was brought up a Southern Baptist. Okay. So what remains with me is, uh, I mean, one way to describe it almost is, is that a lot of people feel their conscience as being inside them, whereas I think of it more as a sense of something outside judging me, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, I, and I do have a sense, and, and I assume this goes back to my uh, Baptist upbringing, 
that there is, uh, you know, an arbiter of moral truth out there evaluating my conduct uh, on a <laughs> on a sometimes un- uncomfortably uh, pervasive basis. Uh, but the um, uh, and so I I, th- I thought that, and then then uh, you went on to kind of explicitly distinguish your your sense of divine presence in college. Uh, from from an ex, from a sense from an, uh, a sense of external divinity, you write. What mattered yeah. is not that God forgave me from without, but that God was present within. And then you go on to say, and yet, kind of ironically, your favorite hymn wasn't "It is well with my soul," which is more about the internal, but rather "How great Thou art," which is more of an old-fashioned tribute a tribute to a God out there. Which is the song I remember so clearly. Yeah. Uh, so this all this all made total sense to me, um, even though my my experience was very different. I, I yeah, I, I think what's exciting about uh, this kind of subtle uh, reference to hymns and how experience feels is that even within one tradition, and this is a theme in the, in the rest of the book, there are different ways of being Christian. Totally. <clears throat> and and the this strong sense of a moral judge external to one is one one feeling, one particular traditional uh, position. It didn't do much for me, and it was never a resonant part of my experience. Well, do and you think you, it, it wasn't really taught to you? I mean, I mean, you, it didn't do much for you because it hadn't really been imbibed in you? Oh, we had enough of an evangelical sense that uh-huh, uh-huh. that 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 picture was certainly there, um, but you know that how great thou art song isn't about uh, you know an omnipotent Santa checking up on you. Um, it it does have a strong sense of transcendence, but there's also a a bit of nature reverence in it. Uh, yeah, where where you see God in all things. And there's a grandeur in nature that calls to mind its creator. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a sense that God's not to be reduced to some internal feeling or, 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 or intuition. So transcendence is there, but it doesn't have this sort of moral judgy quality to no, it. No, it doesn't at all. It's just, <laughs> I just meant, it was just interesting to me that you happen to chose as representative of a more external conception of God, a song that was so familiar. I mean, my sisters played that endlessly. (laughs) You know, uh, I don't know if I've ever told you, Bob, but, you know, when I got to the U.S. and uh, I was introduced to evangelical uh, hymnody, my first thought as a young kid was, oh, somebody translated this from Malayalam into English. Uh, Malayalam being my mother tongue. And then... Uh, probably within a few minutes, I, I came to realize, you know, that might not be the way this works. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, the uh, Church Missionary Society of the Anglican Communion had uh, a, a significant role in its sort of British presence. So there was a kind of evangelical infusion into my South Indian Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of these songs that, uh, you know, were familiar to me in Malayalam, and then I got to the U.S. and, as I said, <laughs> I thought somebody had translated it from Malayalam. So, <laughs> yeah, you uh, you clearly had not yet absorbed the American exceptionalism that I hope you've since uh, 
Oh, yes. Yeah, so. Hope has since become second nature to you. So, um, of course. The, the, uh, so, uh, okay, so we mentioned, um, we made a reference to the non-dual, to uh, Advaita uh, Vedanta. Uh, Advaita Vedanta is, uh, uh, I mean, Vedanta is is refers to. Uh, well, how how would you say it? It's a it's a part of Hindu literature and tradition and thought. Um, and and Advaita literally means non-dual, right? Um, and so, what do you? What do you mean when you said you had a, well well first of all describe the non the non dual and the significance of the non dual uh before I ask you how it felt in this uh in its kind of inchoate form when you were uh when you were younger yeah i uh, non duality refers finally to the claim that even if one encounters God uh in a kind of traditional theist way, that isn't the final or truest uh thing to be said about ultimacy. For the Advaitin, the true self, properly understood, is divine. And so the divine is not a being over against me, um, standing external to me, but is my true self. Mm-hmm. And that true self is not understood to be the, the, the body or the mind, but typically understood to be the light of consciousness that illumines the mind. So consciousness itself then becomes... Uh, ultimate reality, or one one of ultimate reality's guises, mm-hmm. and and there is no difference between that and who you truly are, and hence non-dual. So we are all particular instantiations of a thing that you could you could call it. You could call it, I guess, the ground of being. You could call it yes. the universal soul. You could call it the light of consciousness. But in any event, uh, in in this tradition, kind of the apprehension of truth in a way or or you know or mystical experience consists of feeling that apprehending yeah. that apprehending that unity that's right and um you know one of the metaphors that the tradition uses is that if you see two jars uh, you know you might say that the air inside those two jars looks because it's bounded by those jars as though they're distinct mm-hmm. uh some way separate in one jar as opposed to another, but that really is an appearance only, right? Uh, apart from those jars, the air in both of them is the same. It's identical and appears to be bounded. And so because of our sort of body-mind um, constituents, I mean, mind and body, give to consciousness this, this feeling of its being bounded, but it's one light of consciousness that's shining presently in Bob and presently in me. It's it's the very same. And the apprehension of this can have, in principle, transformative effects uh, on your not just your your um, the way you think about things, but the way you behave in principle. Oh yeah, I mean the the small self is the is the self that's perennially endangered, feels threatened feels like it could be augmented by, you know, getting more stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but if the true self is not this bounded, puny little thing that is either threatened or uh, can be enhanced by the acquiring of stuff, then there, uh, then one's entire perspective undergoes transformation. If I am you and you are me, um, that that's a ground for a kind of radical uh, compassion, a sense of non-difference. 
So it has ethical ramifications um, and uh, it has profound consequences for how I live out my my life. Yeah. Now, and we should say as a footnote that there is um, there is a Buddhist version of of non-duality that has has an important difference, or at least yes. it's considered important by a lot of Buddhists and Hindus. I uh, and the idea is that although yes, uh, enlightenment in Buddhism would entail a, in some sense a dissolution of the bounds between self and and other and self and everything else in Buddhism the kind of doctrinal take home from for or one of them is that the self does not exist and was an illusion in the first place whereas whereas uh Hindus would be more inclined to say uh, no no the the self exists it's it's a unity it's just you're just recognizing its unity with the uh with the rest that's right uh where they would agree is that the, that the particular bounded self is not the final or true self. Mm-hmm. So on, on that ground, there's an agreement. And there clearly is an invitation to surrender a kind of unreflective thinking about the particular self as the whole show. That's just, that's too narrow. And there they would agree. Mm-hmm. But the discourse of a kind of eternal substrate of consciousness or being itself as a as a kind of something, as a substance that is enduring uh, across time and is in some sense eternal, those substantive discourses or subs- uh, don't appeal to the to the Buddhists. Mm-hmm. Now you use the term surrender. That's a big. Uh, that was a big word in my uh, in my Christian upbringing. Uh, the, the the representation there was that uh, you were surrendering. I, I think to Jesus was kind of the idea. I mean, we just tended to personify things in the Southern Baptist Church, yes. if you'll forgive us. Uh, but um, yeah, is surrender well. – <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, people listening on podcasts uh, should know that uh, John just performed a, a a little gesture with hands that absolved me not only of this but of all sins. Thank you. Yes. Um, the uh, uh, – there – well, let me just so so surrender brings in, in in this view is associated with salvation. Surrendering to Jesus is to attain uh, salvation. That's the way we had it. And, and the the reason I want to bring the word salvation up, I mean, I have two questions. I guess is the word surrender in the Christian Church? You just used it in Eastern context. I'm interested in the question of, and it's often used in a Christian context. Uh, and I'm interested in, in whether you think. Uh, those two uses uh, have enough in common for us to take seriously. But I, I also want to just nod to the concept of salvation because one criticism, I guess, of of, of, of some projects that are about kind of uh, reconciling or unifying the world's religions is that they have been done from a Western perspective, a Christian perspective. So a concept like salvation that's so central to the Christian tradition, uh, you know, uh, a Christian scholar might go around like looking for signs of it in another religion and finally go, yeah, there it is. That's it. So we're all about salvation. So with that as a, as a backdrop, uh, little piece of rambling, uh, what do you want to say about surrender or salvation? <laughs> it's a, it's such a huge question, but you are dead on. 
um, that that is the charge made, that when Christians do this work of comparing across traditions, they're asking this extremely Christian question, um, you know, can persons from other religious traditions be saved? But I, I'm clear that when I frame something like that question, I'm not assuming that the same, uh, same thing is happening across all traditions. So for me, the word salvation is, and I think for a number of comparative philosophers and theologians, um, a vague category. It, it means that a variety of tradition will have some account of the human predicament. What is it that's screwed up about us? And how might that be healed in some fashion or overcome? And, of course, there will be di differences about how optimistic a particular tradition can be about, you know, can we ever be non-screwed up? Can we be totally transformed? Uh, so the word salvation for me then becomes a kind of neutral category that, that um, I use to think about what a particular tradition says is the human predicament and how that human predicament is overcome. I don't assume that the same process or the identical process is happening in, uh, or even that the same problem is identified as, as the root problem. Right. Yeah. So that's, some would say that's a pretty generic conception of at least, uh, 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 of, yeah. uh, of, of similarity of religions, at least among, along this one dimension. They're all dealing with the human predicament, but you're saying they don't necessarily agree on what the human predicament is. I mean, with Buddhism, we might say they seem to identify suffering, uh, as the, the human predicament and, and being deluded. Uh, it's like, uh, it's like, um, suffering is, is the symptom. Delusion is the cause they discover, you might say. Um, but uh, how much variety is there? Uh, the with Christianity, you might say the human predicament is that what we are sinful, and uh, but by, by almost by nature. And uh, do, do you have conceptions of what the different religions' conceptions of the predicament are? I guess is the question. Yeah, I mean, part of what I try to say in circling the elephant is that uh, we ought to go slow and not assume that there's a singular account of this problem, even within one tradition. Right. Um, so, for example, in the West, all of the sin talk gets framed in a certain kind of Anselmian way. That the that, real that is St. Anselm, I, I, yes. I, I add, just because the adjectival form might not be instantly recognizable to listeners. Yeah. That's right, 11th century, if, if my memory is correct. Right. You know, there, that particular analysis, his particular analysis, uh, and I would say since most of us don't read Anselm, it's not Anselm's <laughs> particular analysis, but Anselmian in the loose sense that influenced by him, we have um, a sense that what's wrong with us is that we have incurred a debt to... Um, the infinite, because we've offended the infinite, and so the debt is infinite. The only way an infinite debt could be paid is by the infinite itself. Uh, no finite being could pay that debt. And so uh, the infinite had to become finite in order to settle the debt on our behalf uh, graciously. 
So by by uh, dying on the cross and settling exactly. accounts. That, and, uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that particular account of the human predicament is extremely Western. The church managed to do without it in the West or the East for 11 centuries before Anselm came along. And, and so the idea that this way of construing the human predicament is the way of construing the human predicament, even for Christianity, isn't quite right. Yeah, well, uh, certainly one thing that occurred to me while I was reading the book was the question you're asking about the relationship among the religions could be asked about the relationship of different manifestations of a given religion. I mean, I've, you know, I've looked at, at Buddhism uh, in some of my own work and geez, I mean, it's, it, I, I don't know how long it would take to have a mastery of the different, uh, you know, even pretty well articulated different Buddhist traditions. Yes. And they debate each other. Yeah. And, and so they certainly seem to think that something is at stake in those debates uh, that can't be sort of, you know, wiped away in some generic account of what Buddhism is. Yeah, and you you have uh, you spend a certain amount of time on the concept of emptiness in Buddhism, but that's much more salient in Mahayana Buddhism than Theravada Buddhism. Although I I my, I think implicitly it's an important part of Buddhist doctrine, pretty much across the board. But even there, even you know, if you ask what are the two most fundamental concepts you can think of in Buddhism, the two or three, well, a couple would be not self and emptiness. Uh, and yet, uh, a lot of Buddhists wouldn't wouldn't uh, necessarily recognize emptiness. Um, yeah, and and that's why I I take to these um, you know kind of homespun metaphors that I might have mentioned in, in you know previous conversations between us. That um, thinking of a religious tradition as akin to a, a pantry or a spice cabinet. Uh, you know, your home has a particular set. Um, and out of that, you assemble hopefully nourishing and tasty dishes. Um, a tradition is like a 2000 year old, if for Christians, uh, pantry and spice cabinet. And to some extent, every Christian takes down certain ingredients out of that, that, that pantry or cabinet and cooks up a particular version of Christianity. Um, and just as any English language user has a particular vocabulary, not all of English, right? I mean, you don't you don't speak English. You you speak a particular delimited right. uh, set of vocabularies and, and gestures, linguistic gestures that you use to do the English thing. So likewise, in the cooking example, you know, I cook up something Christian. Uh, and my version of Christianity might not taste anything like uh, the version of Christianity that a fourth century uh, church father might have cooked up. I, I think there's some continuity. If there wasn't, uh, there might be some issue. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but uh, the variety is so huge that you can't just be Christian in a generic or all-inclusive way. There's just too much in the Christian pantry and you can't possibly cook with it all mm-hmm. or be faithful to it all. It's just not possible. So we all make selections from our particular traditions. And the weird thing is, right, and this is the thing I suggest, certain versions of the Christian dish might actually taste rather like certain versions of the Buddhist dish. 
Um, so, for example, if you have a unitive mystical mm-hmm. framing of the Christian tradition, say influenced by Meister Eckhart, um, you you sound very familiar um, and even resonant to certain forms of Buddhists. Right. Uh, so even if you don't draw anything from another pantry, you can sometimes be a particular kind of Christian that's quite resonant with a Hindu or a Buddhist. Okay. So what, what a generalization you would make is that all religions identify the human what they see as the human predicament and have a way of, of addressing it, dealing with it. You wouldn't go so far to say that salvation is at the center of all of them. Uh, you, um, you know, although, you know, you, you, you could, you know, you could say that, that Buddhists would like to be saved from suffering, but still you, you, uh, you, you say that, you know, on balance, it's too much of a stretch. Um, could you quickly just address that issue of surrender? Just the fact that you used the term, uh, I'm just curious what you'd say about your having brought up the term in an Eastern context and it being such a common term in the Western context, are the words being used? Uh, I, similar? I, I think um, there are very different senses um, in our uses across traditions mm-hmm. of the notion surrender. When I used it with respect to Advaita Vedanta, I was referring to surrendering the conception of ourselves as limited body, soul defined body-mind defined entity. So surrendering this impoverished, contingent uh, conception of who we are to a more expansive one. That's very different than surrendering one's life into the hands of uh, a personal God. Uh, Now, I'm not saying that there aren't notes or feeling tones that might not be analogous, and certainly the sense of being in charge of this whole show by, by myself, that might not work for any of these frames. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there might be resonances and overlaps, but I'm not meaning by the word surrender the same thing across traditions. Okay. I mean, the real differences matter to me. And that's why the whole pass up the same mountain business is not fundamentally my favorite go-to image. Yeah. By the way, uh, when people use that metaphor, is the idea that is that like a kind of progressive evolutionary view of the religions? In other words, is the idea is well, they're still making progress toward the uh, the, the the peak where everything will become clear to them, or is it it's not meant that way? It, it's it's no. not like they will eventually discover they're all saying the same thing because they're all they're all getting clearer and clearer on things. They're, that's not the deal? Typically not. I mean, you're giving it a historical and evolutionary trajectory that sounds like the sort of thing uh, that a Teilhard de Chardin might say. Um, but but I I don't think that's what is by and large in the minds of those who use the mountain climbing mm-hmm. image. They are contending that beneath the manifest diversity of the religious traditions, there stands one ultimate reality, diversely conceived, but fundamentally one and singular. Our conceptions of ultimacy are determined by the cultures and the vocabularies we have. 
Mm-hmm. But that ultimate reality is identical. And uh, at the conclusion of our journey, the differences we maintained at the beginning of our journey will fall away. Uh, and we will have some conception of ultimate reality as the self-same thing. Uh, now, ultimate reality here is kind of a a modern stand-in for uh, the concept of God. In, in the Western tradition, you would say that you know that you need a common denominator if you're a perennialist, right? You need you need you need a term uh, that corresponds to Christian conception of God, but also corresponds to something fundamental in all religions. And ultimate reality is the thing that's posited by perennialists as being at the at the core of all the religions. That's right. Some of us conceive that ultimate reality to be personal. Some of us conceive it to be transpersonal. But the differences lie in our conceptions. But the thing itself is one and the self, one and self-same. Mm-hmm. And we use ultimate reality because any concept we apply would, be, would have to be from a particular tradition. Mm-hmm. So if I say God, I'm using a particular theist term. If I say Brahman, ditto. So ultimate reality is a kind of container word or a, a vague category uh, that is deliberately vague so as to include these various conceptions. Okay. So you don't buy into that way of talking about it. Does does the concept of ultimate reality, or does the, does the word, the term, or the concept figure into the way you think it should be talked about at all? Well, yes, uh, I I do. Um, and some might call me pretty traditional in some respects uh, for, for saying so. I do think that there's a single ultimate reality. Uh, I just don't think that the differences between the various traditions are matters of cultural projection Right. It's not like ultimate reality is a blank wall uh, onto which we project our various cultural conceptions. Right. I, coming from my cultural context as a Christian, project personality onto it. And the, uh, a certain kind of advaitin comes from uh, their particular trajectory and projects a transpersonal something onto it. Right. So. There's one way of looking at this ultimate reality discourse, which says that all the difference comes from us. Mm -hmm. Ultimate reality is one utterly undifferentiated reality that exceeds all our culturally variant projections. Uh, No, on, on my account, there are real differences within ultimate reality and how we practice how we meditate, how we take up a, our orientation towards ultimate reality will enable us to pick up one or the other of these dimensions. Um, so there's a kind of fit between how we practice and conceptualize and what dimensions of ultimate reality shows itself to us, and hence the uh, elephant. Okay, so... The perennialists might say, well, the differences among the way different traditions talk about ultimate reality 
just reflect the fact that they're all getting it a little wrong. These are imperfect formulations. Whereas you would say, uh, no, they're just addressing different parts of ultimate reality. Yeah. Um, so there are a variety of voices now coming from a variety of traditions that say, well, what if ultimate reality is a multiplicity? Um, that there is real difference within divinity and how you practice will show itself, uh, you know, the ultimate reality or different dimensions of ultimate reality will show itself. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you are doing Zen, you will see certain dimensions of ultimate reality that the uh, Eucharist following person won't. And the person who engages in Eucharist might see dimensions of the divine life that are not to be found by those who practice Zen. So how you practice uh, your angle of reproach, if you will, uh, will attune you to registering certain dimensions of ultimate reality that other angles of approach just don't register. Well, is it possible for you to characterize what you think some of the dimensions are, or can you not go further than describing the different nature of the approaches, if that makes sense. Oh, I, I, uh, I try. Okay. <laughs> I, I, in, in my final chapter, I draw a kind of comparison between three features of the world and three features of ultimate reality. Um, so... One of the features of the world that I uh, take to be fundamental and uh, different strands of religious traditions groove onto this is the sheer wonder that there is anything at all. So there is this astonishment that um, anything whatsoever exists. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is sometimes captured in the phrase, why is there something rather than nothing? Right. So that's one, uh, I look out my lovely office window, I'm astonished that, that there is anything at all. But when I look closely at the tree outside my window, there's another feature I pick out. And that is that every single leaf on that tree, every single branch of that tree is distinctive, um, radically singular. Mm-hmm. And that's another feature of reality. I mean, I sometimes say that, you know, if I look at Bob closely enough, Bob's two, the, the trajectory of his eyebrows are not identical, right? I mean, the the world is ridiculous with, with singularity. Um, and that's a feature of reality. And a third, of course, is that despite all the singularity, anything that is, is what it is only by being in relation to uh, everything else. So there is the fact that there is sheer being, there is the fact that there is singular being, and there is this fact of relational being. I think each of these features of our experienced world points to something in divinity. That um, sheer being is part of divinity as being itself. Mm-hmm that there is something in ultimate reality that generates and is a fount of singularity and uh, that divinity is 
in some sense, the ground of relationality. So there's a kind of threefold in my thinking. It's a, a kind of metaphysical threefold. And you might notice that it might be the ground for a certain kind of philosophical Trinitarianism. Uh, and of course, not surprising, I'm a Christian. I, I tend to think in threes, um, but it's a weird trinity. Um, well, is there is there a one-to-one mapping to the Christian trinity? Kind of, yeah. I mean, the ground is uh, understood to be the abysmal father or creator. Um, Jesus the Christ is... Uh, or the Christ or the Logos is the source of singularity. Um, And the spirit is that which binds us all together um, Mm -hmm. and is understood to be the power of relation. So those are, those are God, God, the the father, the son, and the Holy spirit correspond to the, the wonder, the the wonder, well, well, being and, and correspondingly the wonder at sheer being Um, singularity or particularity, the kind of the fact of distinction almost um, and then relationality uh, being represented by spirit, spirit being being this kind of pervasive, I don't know, binding thing or something. Um, right, right. And I'm mindful that the way Christians think about these this threefold is just one way that others uh, come at the same thing. So I think relationality is what Buddhists are trying to get at when they're talking about uh, Pradicca Samudpada as being the same thing as Sunyata, that there's not the slightest difference between uh, between uh, form and emptiness. Right, that way of talking about things is a is an attunement to relationality. Um, Advaita Vedanta is grooving on this ground distinction, and most of our theistic traditions. Uh, East and West, they seem to insist that there's some sense in which the world cannot be collapsed into divinity, that the the distinction matters, not just the distinction between uh, God and world, but also the multiple distinctions of the world itself. And uh, to to flatten all those distinctions out uh, would be a loss rather than a gain. So, I think all three of these perspectives matter, and I think all three of these are really grounded in the divine life, although different traditions will give different accounts of mm-hmm. how that is. So you had, uh, notwithstanding what, what we said earlier about your, 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 your kind of college years being characterized more by an ongoing uh, religious sensibility than a single transformational experience, you did have one big notable experience, re- religious experience back then, had to do with, with nature and so on. Uh, do you want to describe it and tell us how it relates to uh, I- any of these dimensions? Yeah, it's it, it relates in my mind to the third. Um, I was just, you know, uh, as I say in the, uh, in the, in the book, um, I'm reluctant to even call it mystical. Uh, I suppose it, it's the sort of thing that gets put into that into that hat. But I was just walking across campus at Washington University in St. Louis, where I did my undergrad. This is my promotion for my uh, my alma mater, 
Uh, it's a good school. Uh, I had a great time. Uh, and um, I was walking to the library, Olin Library, and uh, on the way there, um, on a path I've taken multiple times, uh, so n- nothing really different, I had a very clear awareness that in this moment, my sense of me as in here and the world as out there fell away. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sense of me as a bounded self separate from everything else, that, that sort of uh, sense of boundedness, uh, that fell out. Let's mm-hmm. just put it that way. And, and then uh, a feeling of proximity, of utter nearness to the, to the trees, the bushes, uh, whatever there was that I typically think of as in some felt sense outside me was no longer felt in that moment to be outside me. So that's, that's a non-dual experience. That's, that's in, in, yeah, in Hindu not- tradition, Advaita would be the term. Well, but it's not really an Advaita experience because it wasn't an experience uh, of unity with some ground. Mm-hmm. It, it was, uh, let, shall we say, a horizontal uni- uh, non-duality. I think of Advaita, and, and my Advaita colleagues may say, John, that's really too narrow. But typically, uh, Advaita senses of non-duality have a vertical sen- uh, feeling to it that that you and the ground are one. This was a kind of lateral or horizontal feeling mm-hmm. of unity. Me and the world were one. So the uh, it wasn't me with being itself or Brahman. It was me and the world that I think of as outside me. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've had the kind of experience you describe. I mean, I, like at a Buddhist meditation retreat, I, I don't... Not often, but but very much the sense that uh, I mean the the thing I remember is is feeling a tingling in my foot and hearing a bird sing and and feeling that I didn't really feel that the the tingling was any more a part of me than the bird singing or the bird singing was any less it's, a part. It was very that 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 resonates with you as as your exactly yeah uh, I, I, that's that has your particular flavor of how it felt to you but that's that's exactly the kind of thing i mean yes and um yeah and again the buddhist uh interpretation of where you're headed when the bounds of the self seem to dissolve is toward the realization that the self doesn't exist not the way uh a hindu would put it in any event you're saying you're saying the hindu experience it's or the the advaita vedanta experience itself the, the experience uh that would be recognized in that tradition as being a kind of ultimate experience uh, would not be what you and I have just described. That's interesting. Um, I, d- I don't think so. Now, again, these traditions are vast rep- repositories, and I I would suspect that uh, I, it would be foolish of us to make, mm. uh, you know, completely encompassing statements yeah. <laughs> about these things. I talked once, uh, I've had a couple of conversations on this platform with a guy named Gary Weber who, uh, is, has done a lot of work in, in Buddhist and, uh, you know, other Eastern traditions, certainly including Advaita Vedanta. And, um, 
He's definitely uh, kind of at some point crossed the threshold that I did not enduringly uh, cross. But but I think he, I believe he's one of the people who described the feeling as, when I said, well, don't you feel like there's a there's this realm of consciousness and that's the perspective from which you're viewing the world. And he said it was uh, it was more like the feeling that there's a field of consciousness and you are one of its windows. Now, that, that sounds like maybe a little closer to the Advaita thing than what yes. we, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, of course, there's, there are even debates within the Advaita tradition as to whether any kind of experience of the self is possible or mm-hmm. desirable. Now, there are some Advaitins who hold, I think Shankara does, that you can't experience the self because the self is that by which you would experience. And so just as the tip of the finger cannot touch itself, mm-hmm. um, you can't actually have an experience of the self, of Brahman. You can only come into a kind of clarity that that is what you are um, and, and be convinced that your puny identity is not really final. But you can't really have a mystical experience of yourself because it's neither possible nor necessary. You just have to give up the false idea that you took to be who you were. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's how, you know, I mean, you, you have real differences within strands of one tradition. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, but, but, Tell me this, if you do think we can say that uh, that ultimate reality has these three dimensions that tend to be tapped into one way or another um, by uh, different traditions and different religions... I mean, how how different is that from the perennialist view? You know what I mean? I mean, you're saying, uh, I mean, the, the three dimensions constitute something generic, right? And, and uh, that you you um, that you think are are in themselves real, right? And so, so you know, how, so convince me you're not a perennialist. You know, depending on. Uh, the time of day and <laughs> season of the year, maybe I get sort of vexed about being called a perennialist. Uh, and, you know, oh, no, no, I'm not one of those old-fashioned perennialists. Mm-hmm. And there are other times where I'm like, John, chill. It, it really, you know, <laughs> do, you, do you really want to make a big deal and fight about this? Um, that said, here's what I would say. I... I don't think I'm projecting uh, a threefoldness onto reality. I think in some sense, reality contains this threefold. And, and so there's, there are real distinctions there to be picked up. And when a Buddhist grooves themselves to pick up relationality, they are engaging in practices of self-transformation that make it likely that that which they seek will be found because they're practicing that way. 
And so they're really picking up something really there. They're not projecting uh, relationality onto reality, um, but it's really there to be found. And there's something really there to be found about singularity. And there's something really to be found. So for me, these differences matter. And they're not merely a matter of my projection or my cultural starting point. Um, so that's why I'm not, I don't think, um, a kind of old school perennialist. I, I think most old school perennialists, to me, sound like they're all ground people, right? That they're really, if you ask them, well, what is, which tradition gives the most satisfactory account of what you take ultimate reality to be like, I think most perennialists are closet advitants. Hmm. Um, well, Huck, I believe Aldous Huxley was. Yes, I think Huxley was. So I'm, I'm not, right? I'm not a closet advitant. I am an advitant with respect to picking up this ground-like dimension of ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. I'm a Christian in a very robust sense when I make this um, affirmation of singularity uh, and the, the, the distinctiveness of all things, including the distinctiveness of that one particular uh, first century Jew. And I'm a kind of Madhyamaka person when I grew up. Madhyamaka meaning? Uh, Madhyamaka Buddhism. Uh -huh. in, in, the, in the sense of saying that really there is no ultimate reality behind the scene somewhere, like Brahman, uh -huh. but that the ultimate reality is just this world seen rightly as relation. Mm -hmm. right? uh, so when I open up to just this world, but minus the sense of separation, of boundedness, that's the only world there is, and that world is wholly uh, relational, wholly in both senses. <laughs> Relationality mm -hmm. is the holy. With, with a W and without. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, but but it is it is interesting that you were raised in a, in a Christian tradition and yet almost spontaneously had a, a kind of advaita is a, a kind of experience that would be more closely associated with East and West. Oh, yeah, that sense of being accompanied, but not really by a person, mm -hmm. a sense of constant nearness and presence, that really is more like an Advaita experience of, of, of a ground that is just there and is not separate from me. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I, I don't know why that is. I suspect that I, I groove onto this threefold because I've had encounters with all three features of ultimate reality in my in my devotional life mm -hmm. so th those three things uh leave theology aside uh they could constitute uh just a metaphysics right yes. i mean there is being well, the starting point of one yeah, yeah i mean there is being there is distinction which gives us singularity particularity and the distinct things are pervasively related uh, now, um, and so I guess it's a good thing in, a, in any liberal theology if, if the theology maps onto something that could pass for metaphysics, a, a metaphysics emerging from secular philosophy, kind of, right? Yeah, I mean, in, in the book, I suggest that my position might even be uh, 
articulatable as a kind of naturalism, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I can imagine a certain kind of person who comes from no particular tradition grooving onto this threefold and saying, yeah, these are real features of reality and boy, they're marvelous. And I uh, am deeply resonant with them, but I don't say that they speak to something else uh, called divinity or ultimate reality. These are just three features of reality um, that any of us can experience and groove onto. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, I, I leave that open. I don't think this is a metaphysics. I think of this as a kind of phenomenology, a threeness in experience. How they hold together in some technical way, that would be the work of metaphysics, right? A metaphysics would be a system that somehow tries to do equal justice to all three mm-hmm. intuitions. And that's, 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 that's a much more big deal philosophical project than uh, I can do now and maybe ever can pull off. Well, let me ask you about the the first element that would have sprung to my mind if you had uh, said, well, what is missing um, from this metaphysics? Uh, if we give you these three elements, uh, I would have said consciousness, awareness. Um, does that, uh, what do you think of consciousness? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, obviously, um, I tend to, when I think about consciousness, uh, be an advaitin, right? Um, that the light that shines in my mind, that illumines it, but is not the mind, mm-hmm. but is the, the the ground for the possibility of awareness itself. Well, that's, so, I mean, you see, I, I would put consciousness in the first category. Yeah, although, I mean, that's when the question arose, is when, when you said, uh, you know, it, it's just, why is there something rather than nothing? It's amazing uh, that there's there's anything. And then I thought, yeah, it's also amazing that there's anybody to be amazed. I mean, it's amazing yeah. that 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 the subjective experience of amazement is possible. Yes, no, I, I totally agree. And I think uh, Hindu traditions would tend to not separate those two. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think the time has come to unveil your metaphor. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the one final hint is that there's in, in addition to the word elephant being in the title, there's a big picture of an elephant. It's a very attractive image, actually. I mean, a painted that's image of a, of, no, of an well, elephant. Well, yeah, there you, you go. Can't, you can't see it because of the background. That's right. It's kind of cutting out. I think if you put it right in front of yourself, actually, oh. uh, instead of in, in, in the back, uh, no, over in front of your head so that we can't, yeah, there. Now you can oh. see the entire thing. You have uh, you've you've done this before, so you know how this works. Uh, I have done a few of these. Um, yeah. So um, so anyway, talk about remember the the uh, metaphor that you're rejecting is the idea that all religions are climbing the same mountain. Uh, and and why don't you talk about your metaphor? Yeah, I mean, my metaphor is not really mine. It might be the oldest standing metaphor for thinking about religious diversity, as it's found in um, early Buddhist texts. Um, So, and then I think it gets picked up by Jain and Hindu thinkers. But it's it's not applied to religious diversity in the Buddhist texts, is it? uh, It it is not necessarily to religious diversity, but the reality itself is multiple. Okay. Um, But yes, 
uh, for me, um, and certainly for 20th century figures like Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, uh, there, there are others, 2,000 years at least, if not more, of people suggesting, well, what about this, this old image of uh, blind men and the elephant? That's the way the story is usually told, that a king or some other uh, person gathers a variety of blind persons and puts them before an elephant, and that each of them uh, quickly begins to argue with all the others because they have very different experiences. Uh, the guy who's up against the side of the elephant says, this is clearly a wall. And the person who grabs the, uh, the leg says, this is clearly a tree trunk. Uh, you're an idiot to say it's like a wall. And somebody else get, grabs a hold of the tusk and says, this is clearly a spear. Uh, so the, the function of the metaphor, of course, is that each really is right about what he knows, but wrong in supposing that uh, all the others make, are making mistakes. Right? Because the, the individual blind person says the whole elephant uh, is exhausted by what I say about it. And that's simply not true. There are real differences in the elephant. And therefore, you might well be right about what you know and what you celebrate. Say you're a singularity person. But the relationality person is not wrong because you emphasize singularity. So I, I, I think there are real differences in ultimate reality. And... Well, real you differences know, within one ultimate reality. That's correct. Different not, dimensions. That's right. right. And, and several people will, 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 will say, well, John, how do you know that you're, you know, the other guy isn't grabbing onto a donkey? I mean, you know, there's this, might there be multiple ultimate realities? And that's another question. My basic metaphor is multiplicity within one um, ultimate reality. Um, the metaphor is panned and by Christian theologians of a conservative sort, typically, uh, because they say, John, the metaphor presumes that there's some all-knowing, seeing, sighted person who, who sees the whole elephant. And uh, so that, that person, that supposedly all-knowing person, is the one that makes the metaphor work. And I said... I say, no, no, you, uh, there is no all-knowing person. Uh, and there is, in fact, no way to circle the whole elephant because the elephant is infinite. Um, so we each know what we know. And we circle in order to learn from others. So the circling the elephant is an invitation to comparative theology. Um, actually study other traditions not merely in textual form, but I think at least some of us are called to practice as others do, hmm. not merely to theorize, um, but to go join a sangha uh, and learn what can be learned only by sitting as Buddhists do or uh, chanting as Hindus do and come into a bodily knowing of ultimate reality through the embodied practices and disciplines of other traditions. Okay. Um, 
And so you do that. I noticed, you know, I'm still on the email list. I was a visiting professor uh, at Union for a while, and I'm still on the email list. And I noticed you're, you're leading, I guess, online meditation sessions or, or uh, yeah, so that's part of your. So how would you describe your your religious practice overall? What what are its uh, constituents? It's it's trans religious constituents. Yeah, I mean, my home ground remains deeply and profoundly Christian. I'm a regular um, Anglican slash Episcopalian and worship in Anglican communities that are in my home and uh, teach, preach, and function as a as a theological. Uh, leader in my Christian community, in the in the Christian communities to to which I belong, that's in some ways my my home and my ground. But I have studied with and continue to read the Upanishads with uh, you know uh, Hindu teachers, and my uh, my Hindu teacher is Swami Paramarthananda, who is based in what is now Chennai. Um, I still consider him my teacher. Uh, even though it's been now four years since I've seen him in person, one doesn't get to India very often these days uh, mm, or and, anywhere or anywhere. And, um, but I also am uh, deeply shaped by and practice in Tibetan Buddhist uh, communities that, that have a bit of uh, an Advaita feel specifically the Nyingma tradition, but, but also strongly emphasize this uh, the sense of relationality. So I remain grounded in all three, um, but I suspect I read the Hindu and Buddhist traditions. I mean, as my Trinitarian metaphor suggests, you know, from my situatedness in my Christian skin and home. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make sense? It does make sense. And I applaud you for, uh, you know, maintaining contact with so many traditions in an actual practical way. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the context for all of this uh, is that the world has been getting smaller for a couple hundred years as uh, religions, you know, came in contact with one another. I, I guess uh, the what what World's Fair what, or no is Chicago, the Parliament of the World's Religions in the late 19th century. There was a big, a big kind of almost in a way, initial momentous contact between Eastern and Western thinkers and kind of, it seems like ever since, it was like 1896 or something. Three. 1893. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since that, we've been sorting the, these things out and the world has been getting smaller. And so it's, a, it's a, you know, an important mission. Yeah, I suspect what's weird about my particular way of going about it is that I think it, the particularities matter. And so... I think it matters that one remains grounded and uh, in com- in robust connection with actual teachers and communities. That you aren't just making the stuff up as you go mm-hmm. along. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know what I would do without my being grounded in a Christian community and uh, and then reading and engaging in the practices of other traditions. You're walking the walk. I'm trying to. Uh, well, <laughs> congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, maybe I'll, uh, I, I hope I'll run into you in real life at some point. You know, I still have to, uh, I, I think before long I'm going to be told to clean out my office uh, union since I have, <laughs> uh, because, you know, I suspect that, uh, 
Cornell West is going to use it. It, it, it yeah. it's uh, you know Cornell is coming back to Union as you know from Harvard, and uh, it was next to his, uh, and he, that one is now occupied, and they're fundamentally the same office. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they're going to say tell me to uh, to uh, get out of the way of progress. And um, so maybe yeah. I'll uh, maybe I'll uh, if you're a union, then it'd be good to see you in person one more time. In any event, uh, thank you so much for uh, for the time in the book, circling the elephant: a comparative theology of religious diversity. Um, and is there anything anything else you want to say about the book before we go? Oh, I mean, it's 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 300 pages. There's a lot more to be said. Yeah, don't say I, all of that. No. <laughs> but I think we've covered uh, the core arguments. Well. The essential outlines. Great. Yeah. Well, I guess the only other thing I would say is that there's this. Well, I mean, uh, Cornell and I are going to teach this Gandhi and King class, huh. uh, which we've already done once. And one of the chapters there is a chapter on Gandhi and King. And I guess the thing I want to say about that is that this kind of Mutual learning doesn't just happen in the privacy of, of individual persons, but entire cultures can be transformed by giving and receiving across religious traditions. So as, for example, when King and King's teachers went to India, some of whom met Gandhi, engaged in um, nonviolence, uh, you know, thinking about and practice of nonviolent disciplines, which is a kind of Hindu gift received by Christians. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you know, Gandhi himself was deeply influenced by Tolstoy uh, and Tolstoy's reading of Christianity. So the kind of giving and receiving across traditions I call uh, interreligious receptivity. Uh, and that's not just for you or me as isolated practitioners, but for traditions, too. Okay, so, so you're teaching yeah. that course in the fall with Cornell? Spring. Spring of next year. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, I guess so. We plugged your book. We'll close then with a plug for Union. If people want to take that course, <laughs> they need to apply for admission to Union Theological yeah, Seminary right. in New York. Uh, so thanks a lot, uh, John, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hope to see you down the road. Thank you.